Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime. LGBT Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. And joining us today, we've got a special guest, Michael Morford, who's one of our Zodiac specialists. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's good to have you here. So. Mike, you've got to tell us a little bit about your story. What brought you here? What got you interested in, well, to begin with, serial killers, and then you decided to specialize on Zodiac. What brought you to this point? Well, I guess when I was a kid, you know, I was always interested in different mysteries, and, you know, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries was on when I was growing up, and I really got into that. And then I read a book on, on Zodiac during, you know, my high school years, and we were signed a, a book report, and I chose to do it on that case, and um, that sort of started it all for me. I just got hooked on that case, and over the years, checked out a couple more books, and then, you know, once, you know, the online community started popping up, you know, I, I really got into that, and it, it took off from there. So you were a, oh my gosh, you should have said that off air, because I actually share that with you. We were assigned a topic and we had to do a research paper and I chose serial killers and that's really how I got introduced to Zodiac. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I don't mean to be jumping right to the end, but from my understanding, the Zodiac is still, to this very day, he's out there. Yeah, he was was never identified and, you know, that's one of the lures of the case is that this guy could write lots of letters to the press and have this big spree and then just vanish and and somehow not be caught after all these years. And I think that's part of what adds to, to the lore 
So, really, what is it about the Zodiac that, you know, impresses upon you this much? I think it's, you know, the brazenness to to write to newspapers and, and in his real handwriting, what I feel is his real handwriting anyways, write letters over and over taking credit for, for different crimes, calling into the, the police after the attacks, sending pieces of, of victims' clothing, sending ciphered codes. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard not to take all that in and, and think that's a really fascinating case with, with lots of different twists and turns, and over the years people have their theories. It's, it's just one of those cases that you really get lost in, and you hope to see that it's solved one day, but at this point, who knows, it's, it's, it could be past that, that time. So, you know, you've got a really good point there, and, and let's move on that. Here we have we we have a killer who, you know, would if I remember right, he would start by shooting victims, and then he would write to the San Francisco Chronicle saying, "I did this," and as evidence, here's this, here's this, here's what you'll find at the crime scene. Why, you know, because you brought this up. Why would he then later begin writing in cipher and insist at the same time that this be publicized to all of San Francisco? I think that he wrote to them with the ciphers to, to appear more mysterious. You know, maybe I've written some, read some books about the case, about cipher cases and ciphers in general, and thought it was, you know, pretty neat to write a letter like that and have the police try and figure it out, almost like he was living in a fantasy world where he was some great villain and he would send them secret codes and see if they could stop him. And I, I think that's how it started, and I personally think that he wrote those letters to get attention for himself, and then when they published them, he saw that, that he had a voice that he didn't have probably in his everyday life, and he was able to get attention, and he was the talk of the town in San Francisco back then. You know, that was... Mm -hmm the heyday of the hippie movement, you know, the big place on the map. So for him to be terrorizing the San Francisco Bay Area at that time, he really got a lot of attention, and that was probably something that he craved. And I think after a while, the crimes themselves were secondary. The main motivation was, was the letter writing. Well, when you say the letter writing, do you, do you think it was his ego? I mean, it sounds like this guy had a fantastic ego, if it was a he, and I assume it was. Yeah, yeah it, he definitely had an ego, and... And I think more than that, he probably needed some attention. I think in his regular everyday life, he was probably not somebody that got a lot of attention. And to have this voice all of a sudden where he was important, where people were talking about him, I think he kept feeding that, you know, that ego, that need to be recognized with those letters. And they kept publishing them, and, and it, it worked for him. He stopped killing and just continued writing letters for, for several years. Well, there also seems to be an element of um, him thinking he's more intelligent with this, with these encrypted sort of letters, coded letters, and, and, and this cat and mouse game as if he was superior to the police. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I, th I think he, he thought that going in, and he thought he might outsmart them, and then, you know, the first cipher that he mailed was solved by a, a high school teacher, <laughs> and then he sent another cipher, you know, a couple more ciphers actually that haven't been solved. So he either stepped up his game as far as how difficult they were to solve or he just sent them something that was totally unsolvable because, you know, people like the CIA and the FBI and all kinds of 
different analysts and computer systems have been fighting to try and break that last cipher that he sent, and that's never been solved. And your approach to your book, I mean, how did you approach writing the book? What spin did you put on it? What perspective? Well, so I host a true crime podcast called Criminology, and season one we just completed um, not too long ago, and it was about the Zodiac case. And we got the idea, how cool would it be to have the entire podcast um, converted to a book? And, you know, I had been approached previously about writing a book about the case, and I didn't really consider myself much of a writer. Um, but then I realized after writing so much material for the podcast that I had, you know, a book, essentially. So we, we talked with Wild Blue Press, and, and they do a lot of true crime uh, publication and it seemed like a really good fit. We had some good ideas, and we wanted to sort of bring the podcast to a new audience, if you will. You know, people that read books and, and are big readers that might not be into podcasts as much, this was a way that they could enjoy what we had presented on the podcast in, in a book format. Well, um, this uh, one man, Gary Stewart, claims that it was his father who was this uh uh, killer, Zodiac killer. Um, did you ever come up with anyone you thought was most likely to be the killer? Yeah, my favorite suspect is Ross Sullivan. He's somebody that's gotten a lot of attention uh, recently. He was focused on um, A&E did, uh, or History Channel, excuse me, did a uh, series about the Zodiac case, and Ross Sullivan was one of the main suspects they talked about. Um, I think he was a, a good suspect. But in the book, we tried it. We mentioned some suspects, but we don't try and force any of them on anybody. We just sort of mention them in passing and, and let people decide for themselves who their favorite suspect might be. See, I'm one of those people that wants to know, like, who really was Jack the Ripper? And everyone comes up with all these different fascinating oh, possibilities. There's 50 of them. Right. And, and also with the Zodiac Killer. And I thought uh, maybe with your perspective, Mike, that you might, you know, like narrow it down for us. And I mean, is there someone you think really did it or you it's, just not like, say? Or? Well, if, if I had a guess, I'd, I'd say it was Ross Sullivan, you know, without going into the entire Zodiac story because it's a, a long, complicated one. But Zodiac seems to have roots down in Riverside County in 1966, you know, a few years before the Zodiac murder started. And in particular, his writing was traced to a, a library in, in Riverside, and Ross Sullivan worked in that library. And then later on, when we finally got a, a picture of him after digging for a couple of years, we found out that he looked identical to the Zodiac sketch. Um, so it sort of snowballed from there, and, and that's how it sort of started with him. And again, that's my own personal thought. A lot of people like him as a suspect. Some people do not. Um, but that's what's great about this case. Everybody can have their own theory, their own suspect. There's been some, some fair suspects over the years. Arthur Lee Allen uh, was, was the most famous suspect, uh, but for different reasons, he's, he's sort of ruled out. But, you know, we've had lots of people confessing, saying my uncle was the Zodiac, my father was the Zodiac. It seems like every year these claims are made, and then, you know, it passes, nothing comes of it, and then the next year somebody else is making the same claim. So... There's no shortage of suspects. You know, a lot of them are, are pretty good, and, and some of them are not so good. Seems like there's more all the time. Well, the steward said it was his father, Earl Van Best Jr., who was his biological father. And he said he died in 1984, which would explain why we don't hear of the Zodiac Killer anymore. Do you think he's still alive? I don't think the Zodiac's alive. I think whoever he is, 
you know, has died by now, you know, he would be, depending on the age range, on the, on the early end would probably be, you know, late 60s on the very early end. He could be in his 80s. So if he's alive, he's probably not too active. Uh, you know, I wouldn't think he is, but but I tend to think he, he died. <laughs> oh, I guess he wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, I, I think with, with some of the media coverage and books and movies and things that have come out, I think he wouldn't have been able to resist writing a letter and just reaching out. So I, I tend to think he's dead. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Um, and, and the upshot of your book, I mean, how do you end your book? What's, what's the summation of it? Well, essentially we go from start to finish with the case and just sort of a walk through from the beginning of where it starts and, and where it leaves off, which is essentially – you know, 1974 when the letters stop. You know, we do talk about some of the books and things that movies and whatnot that come after that, uh, pop culture stuff. But uh, essentially, for the case coverage, we ended in 1974, and that's when the letters stop from the Zodiac. Because after that, everything is is guessing, is theory. Uh, but everything between that time, from you know 1966, if you want to go back that far, uh, you know, essentially all of that is stuff we discuss all the way up from 1974 when the letters stopped. So, what, and you see, oh, I'm sorry, so, so what was his first killing? Well, his first confirmed killing was in um, December of 1968 uh, in the outskirts of Vallejo. But again, before that, down in Riverside in 1966, he's linked to some stuff there that's not officially confirmed. Uh, and that was the murder of a, a young girl named Sherry Jo Bates. And then going back as far as 1963 in Santa Barbara County, um, there's a double murder of a young couple down there that, that there's some evidence that links him possibly to that. Um, but the first, you know, official confirmed attack by Zodiac is in December of 1968. And we were discussing this uh, just before we went on the air, but I'd like to repeat it on the air. Um, you, your fascination with him in particular um, is it because of his ego? Because, I mean, he didn't commit the most killings. I think John Wayne Gacy did, didn't he? And, uh, and, and so, yes. Yeah, and it, from, a, from a, a murder or serial killer standpoint, I should say, you know, he doesn't have that many confirmed kills. He's got a handful of confirmed kills, and they're over a short period of time. You know, there's a few others that he's speculated killing, but compared to a lot of serial killers, that's, you know, a drop in the bucket for, for victim count. So it wasn't that, that that made him as popular and well-known as as he is. It was the letter writing, I think, that he was sort of original with reaching out to the police and, and playing this cat-and-mouse game, and they kept publishing his letters, and he kept sending more, and it was this open dialogue. And I think that sort of is, is for me anyway, is what adds to the lore of the case is just that dialogue that you seem to have that is very uncommon with, with most, you know, serial killers. Most serial killers don't want to get caught and they're avoiding the police. Here this guy is reaching out to them and, and giving them clues and having a dialogue with them. So that was pretty original and that's, that's one of the most fascinating things about the case. It also sounds like the media played a big role in it too, almost like a, not just a serial killer but a, a serialized column in the newspapers and TV at the time is what you're basically saying, right? right? And the, the sensationalism. Right. Absolutely, because that was that was newsworthy for them, and that was selling newspapers for them. So the fact they opened that dialogue, 
people wanted to see what Zodiac was doing and saying and what the correspondence was, and and I think that sold newspapers for them, and that's, you know, whether that's why they chose to have a dialogue with them in the first place, who knows, but, you know, on their, from a business standpoint, it's probably smart because they did sell a lot of newspapers. And also, it sounds like the police um, played a certain role in uh, making this notorious by releasing all those letters, and one would have thought they wouldn't, but so it's a bit of a surprise that well, they did. Or at least do so on the advice of the police, because he also sent letters to the police as well. Yeah, um, for the most part, he did right. He did send a code, a cipher code to the police. There's some possibility he down in Riverside he had sent stuff to the police. In, in San Francisco, in that area, for the most part, he was sending them to the newspapers. But um, the police chose, you know, the newspaper would turn them over to the police, and the police would chose, they chose which ones to release and which ones to not release, um, you know, trying to hold some stuff back, you know, not including certain details in some of the letters. Um, but they did, I think part of the reason they, they released the letters to the public was because they were hoping to identify him through some of his writing. Because if you see those letters, you can Google them and, and find lots of images of, of them online. You know, to me, that looks like his everyday normal handwriting. I don't, I don't think he's disguising his handwriting. So I think the police probably had hoped to release that information and, and those letters, hoping that somebody might recognize it. Well, could you tell us about some of the killings themselves? I'm kind of curious because it's been so long. I don't really remember much about the individual killings. Well, so essentially what he would do is he would stalk people in Mulder's lanes, you know, it'd be couples parked in their cars and out of the way, secluded areas, and, you know, he shot a couple couples in a row, you know, one in, again, in December of 1968 and then um, in July of 1969. And then from there he went on to, you know, move over to Napa County, which is, you know, a county over, and he struck at Lake Berryessa, and this time he attacked a couple that was, you know, in the daytime, which was sort of unusual for him. And instead of shooting them, he stabbed them, which, you know. And then the final victim that he's known to have, have killed is Paul Stein, a cab driver he shot in San Francisco. And that was sort of a departure in that it was a different area. It was a lone male. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he sort of changed his MO slightly as he went along. Uh, but primarily he started out stalking vulnerable couples on lovers' lanes, you know, late at night. Well, is, is that normal for them to change their modus operandi that extremely? I mean, gun to knife, different locations, different victims? That That's not the normal serial killer uh, style, is it? Well, if they don't want to get caught right away. Well, no, but I mean, serial killers always seem to go after a type. I mean, you know, they like young women, or they're going after young men, or they like couples, like uh, the Zodiac Killer did to begin with. But usually they don't change in midstream. Isn't that unusual, or is it? Yeah, I, I think for the, a lot of times, anyway, you see killers have a very specific MO. They target the same kinds of people with the same kind of weapon. And, and again, for the most part, he did use a gun in, in just about all his crimes. In fact, when he stabbed the couple, he had uh, a gun with him, and one of them survived, and he was able to re relay to police that he did use a gun to calm them down and subdue them and tie them up, and then he pulled out a knife and stabbed them. So for the most part, it was, you know, a gun. And if you go back to the Riverside case in 1966, the girl that he 
associated with down there, Sergio Bates, she was stabbed to death. Um, so there's this little intersecting of knife versus gun, uh, but primarily he does target vulnerable people that are that are alone or sort of in, in secluded areas. So that part of the MO, you know, holds true. And I'm, I'm trying to grab to to grasp this here. Well, while, so, while you do that, uh, let's go here real quick. Um, each type of a killing, if I remember my psychology right, each type of killing represents something about the killer themselves. For example, gunshots. I don't want to be that close to the person. Knife attacks is something personal. And then you have rage attacks, which is multiple. What changed about the Zodiac that he changed his method of killing? Also, his victims, his targets. That, wouldn't that be psychological too? Yeah, it, it seemed like, you know, he he definitely attacked both the men and the women that he encountered, but it seemed like the women, he spent a little bit more time attacking, and they, most often they died, whereas, you know, a few different males survived. Um, and it seemed like he was, you know, he wasn't strangling people, he wasn't getting up very close to them. He liked to walk up, blitz attack, shoot, and then leave. Um, whereas at Lake Berryessa one in Napa County, that was more personal, you know, stabbing somebody is more personal. Um, you've got to get close to them and you know, that's where his, his MO slightly changed. Although again, he did have a gun with him, so he probably was prepared to use a gun if he needed to. And, you know, we could speculate as to why he did that, but, um, we just don't know. He could have had a fantasy about stabbing somebody, or if he was connected to the Sherry Joe Bates case back in 1966, maybe he wanted to re relive that. Um, you know, there's all kinds of possibilities about why he chose to to use that attack with a knife. Did they? Did he use the knife? Different knives and different guns, or did they? I because I, I don't remember that. I, yeah. Or, yeah, I'm sorry. He he did use different guns in in his crimes. You know, he used different handguns. Um, and the one time that we know he used a knife, he used a, a like a bayonet style long bladed bread knife. You know, if you can picture that kind of knife, um, that's what he used to stab them with. But in the shooting incidents, he he did use different um, different handguns. And back in the 1963 case, that he think he maybe you know law enforcement think he may have been connected to he used a rifle in in that instance okay so he changed his modus operandi he changed his victim type uh do you think his motivations changed as well his motives yeah i, I mean motivation wise i think towards the end when he killed paul stein the cab driver he he was striking in a new area it was in the heart of san francisco it was a lone male. It wasn't vulnerable couples. I think he was trying to switch up his M.O., maybe throw off the police a little bit. But then, again, I, I think his M.O. shifted away from killing people. I think the killing was done to get some kind of attention. But then he realized he could get the attention with the letter writing and not even have to kill people. So I think as you see that go along, you know, you see those attacks stop, but the letter writing just continues. And the threat of killing other people is what he's he enjoying. He likes the attention for get you know making the threats to kill other people. So you don't think it was about power over the victim or uh, or any kind of a sexual 
kind of uh, urge or anything as it is with some of them? I think he got probably some kind of sexual satisfaction. I think they're tied together. You know, whether he even knew it or not, I think that gave him some kind of pleasure, no doubt. But I, I think what outweighed that, what he got the most pleasure from, was getting the attention that, that the letters to the newspapers gave him. And, and he enjoyed that, and he kept writing and kept trying to outdo his letters each time with fancier letters. Um, so I think that became his driving motivation. So you think it was notoriety, basically, that drove him principally? Yeah, that's what I think it wound up being. If, even if it didn't start out that way, I think that's sort of where it led him to, and that's where he got the most satisfaction out of. Well, here's the theory. Uh, how about this, guys? That actually, in the beginning, he was actually looking for women and was prepared, as Mike suggests, for a male with a gun, but he meant to attack the women with a knife and just happened to run into the men. So it became a double murder. Well, how does that explain I mean, the taxi driver, though? Yeah, it's, it's, it's possible, but if, if you look at his first two taxis, there's no evidence of him using a knife at all. It's just simply walking up to the car. You know, in the first case, the people got out of the car, so he either ordered them out or they ran to get out of the car, one of the two, and he shot both of them and killed them. Uh, no evidence of a knife used in that crime. And then the second shooting, he walked up, came alongside the door and just opened fire. There was mm -hmm. never any kind of interaction, no talking to the female, no trying to get her out, no showing a knife. It was just a blitz-style attack, just shooting. And then he walked away and started to get in his car, and he actually came back and shot some, some more. So he could have, if he wanted to use a knife, he could have taken a knife out after that and started using it, but he never, he never did. He only used the knife that one time that we know of with certainty. What do you think made him stop? You know, I think it, it's. I, I think he really didn't want to get caught because after his last, you know, attack on Paul Stein, the cab driver, he was witnessed, you know, walking away from the crime scene. He left a bloody print on the cab at, at the crime scene, and that infamous Zodiac sketch that if you Google Zodiac, you see this sketch of side by side, you know, composites of him. I remember it. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that scared him, and he was just seconds away from being caught because. As soon as he walked around the corner, police were on the scene. It was very fast. And um, there's some indication that he was witnessed by, you know, police officers on the scene that night as they were patrolling the area as he was making his escape. So I think he realized that he probably came very close to getting caught, and I, I think he just didn't want to go to jail, and I think that's why he stopped. But serial killers, I thought, like under compulsion, they couldn't help themselves. So periodically, they had to do it, and over time, it begins to speed up, and they have to do it more and more often. So he could just turn it on at some point in his life and then switch it off like that, you think? Well, I think we see in, in a lot of cases some of these guys can um, end for stretches of time. You know, if you, if you look at somebody like um, uh, BTK, he stopped for several years. Um, if you look at the Golden State Killer, there's a five-year. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiatus where he doesn't kill anybody, and then all of a sudden he does. Um... So there, is, right, there are instances right. where serial killers do stop for periods of time. But not forever. Well, he could have died, he could have went to jail, and he got maybe whatever. He doesn't kill anybody. Illness was, he was dealing with, maybe it subsided, or he could be in a mental institution. There's, there's any number of different ideas and theories of, of what stopped him. Well, here's the theory. Maybe he um, thought they were too close. What, with the palm print and everything, maybe he committed suicide. That's definitely possible. That's That's one thing that... Some uh, you know different psychiatrists, psychiatrists and profilers and stuff thought that suicide was a possibility for him um, due to the mental illness that they thought he might be suffering, and they they thought that was one possibility. So any number of suicides during that time, one of those could have been his. Anyone like off the San Francisco Bridge or something? Um, uh, one, I have a, one more question on this subject. Uh, what do you think triggered it in the first place for him to oh, start? I mean, I'll yeah, what just, was the trigger again? Yeah. You know, it's 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 hard to say. You know, down, if if you go down to Riverside, I really think Riverside he was involved in, if not the murder itself, uh, in 1956, it was possibly the victim. You know, the victim was stabbed outside the library, um, and it got a lot of attention, and, and the police. You know, we're investigating everybody there, and I think it was such a sensational story right at that time that I think he he may have been inspired by that to start, you know, whatever things he was already thinking in his head. I think that's what, what drove him drove him to to start his, his crime spree. 
because the letters in, in the murder of Sheriff Joe Bates are attributed to Zodiac, but there's no physical evidence that he killed her, so it's possible that a different killer had killed Sherry Joe Bates, but he sent letters uh, in her case, um, and so he might have started off just taking credit for, for her murder, writing letters in her case, but not had not actually killed anybody at that point. So your theory of uh, notoriety is supported by that. I mean, that that's a good reason for him to start. If it's notoriety and he sees someone else getting notorious coverage, that he would want to do likewise and get the same. Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. So given your research, I've got to ask this because it's, it's nagging at me. Given your research, what is your psychological profile of the killer and of the victims themselves? Well, I think the victims, I'll start with them first. They were easy to find. They were, you know, back in the 60s, if you wanted some privacy, you got with your, you know, a guy and a girl would go out to park on a, a secluded area and, and do some necking or whatever they called it back then, and, and they'd have their privacy, it'd be quiet. Um, and I think he knew that. I think he knew he could find those people in those areas. There'd be little... As far as witnesses, there'd be, you know, a lot better chance of him being able to successfully do what he wanted to do. Um, and I think probably profile-wise, I think he probably was somebody that didn't have a connection with somebody that never had the opportunity to go out and, and park with, you know, a significant other in, a, in an area like that. So I think he sort of um, coveted that. And I think that's why he chose to strike those areas. It was a combination of finding easy victims there, and and um, maybe he was sort of jealous of, of what they were doing that he couldn't do. Um, and I think, you know, you're probably dealing with somebody that's on the edge of society, somebody that's, uh, you know, a lower, you know, blue-collar, um, lower-class person that didn't have anything really going on in their life you know, that's my own personal profile of who he was. You know, there's other people out there that think he was a wealthy businessman that was just doing this for fun. I don't, I don't think that at all. Um, but, you know, that's the thing with this case. There's, there's no right or wrong in, in a theory because in, until he's identified, you know, anybody could be right. It, again, though, that almost sounds like sexual frustration. He's starting out with couples in Lover's Lane. Mm, good points. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that's, again, that's probably something that he didn't have. He didn't have somebody to go out there in a lover's lane with. He was probably lonely, um, probably rejected by women, probably didn't do well dating. Um, so that's something that he resented. So, you know, it was a perfect combination of finding easy victims, but also they were the people that he sort of coveted and resented uh, the activity they were having. So I think that was a, a good uh, target for him. So it's almost like a perverted sexuality in a way after all, because he, he couldn't have it, couldn't get it kind of thing, uh, relationship or anything. And uh, I meant relationship. And uh, yeah. And uh, so he basically went for the satisfaction of notoriety instead. Yeah, I, I, that's my, again, that's my own opinion. I think that's, that's how he started and what drove him. Um, and I think the loneliness that he was experiencing um, and the lack of attention that he got in his everyday life, he was able to get, you know, onto the, the Zodiac, Zodiac persona. I think that's, you know, he took that as far as he could as far as 
writing letters and stuff. Any guesses as to how old he might have been approximately when he started this? You know, I, I, I would guess he was probably in his, you know, there were instances where people talked to him on the phone when he called after his attacks, and they said he sounded young, you know, like possibly in his 20s. Um, in the later descriptions of him, you know, they, they put out one sketch and estimated his age at 25 to 35, then they put out another sketch estimating it at 35 to 45. So it's sort of all over the place. He sounded younger, but he looked as old as 45. Um, so it, it, it's hard to eliminate a good, you know, suspect pool because his age is so broad. Um, the range, yeah. The range yeah. and not just that, but a lot of guys had that look with those those eyeglasses and the um, crew cuts back then. So, you know, that fit a lot of different people back then, unfortunately. Yeah, everyone who worked for the FBI uh, included. <laughs> now, now, there were some killings, and, and this is confusing, and this, this kind of lends into the multiple killer theory. Like you just described, some witnesses describe a man with glasses and a crew cut. And personally, I take offense to that, but that's a whole other show. But <laughs> then you have a killer that is wearing a very particularly styled mask with the crosshairs on it. You know, why the bounce around? Well, at, at night when he, when he attacked, you know, in one of the nighttime attacks, you know, the victims didn't survive, so we don't know what they saw. And the other one that we saw, you know, in July of 1969, there was a survivor, and he described the guy walking up dressed normally, um, not having a mask on, but he had, he did have a flashlight in his eye, so he couldn't see too well, but he didn't see any kind of mask or anything. The, the difference in the one where he wore the mask was it was during the daytime, it was daylight hours, and that was a time when Zodiac didn't usually strike. So I think the mask could have been done um, to, to, number one, protect his identity should something go wrong and he, you know, have to get run away or whatever. Um, but I think the second reason was to terrorize the people that he was, um, you know, going after. You know, you see this sinister guy coming toward you in this, this executioner's mask, essentially is what it looked like. Um, you know, the people are going to be pretty scared. Um, so that's, that's part of the reason I think he probably donned that hood and then after that, he went back to killing at night, where he was described as not having a mask again. So he only he only used that hooded mask one time that we know of. So one has to ask, and and I'm kind of leaning towards a listener question here. Whenever we told them that you'd be on, if Zodiac was alive, how would you picture him today? This is a man that got away with killings from the 60s, 70s, you know, and even took credit for a couple in the 80s. Where would he be today, or what do you imagine him as today? Uh, you know, if I, I have a hard time believing he was married or had a family. You know, you hear about killers who are arrested, and they've been living this life for the last 30 years with their grandkids. I, I don't see this guy as getting married. I think he probably didn't do well with the women. Um, so I, I think he probably never got married. Um and I, I think he probably died, you know, someplace at some point, um, single and, and uh, not much to his name. And, you know, the, the hope with law enforcement and with Zodiac researchers like myself is that there's going to be this treasure trove of 
material and weapons and confessions found in his belongings um, after he died, but that's that's never happened. Um, so I think at this point it's, it's most likely that the case is just never going to be solved and the guy is going to, you know, turn out to be like, you know, Jack the Ripper possibly never known for sure who he was. And so if he's dead, that could have been the reason that he stopped. Or the other thing is that he could have thought the police were coming after him. So that's the reason he stopped. Any kind of a third idea there? Any theories? No, I mean, those are the two most most you know, logical ones, I would think, is fear of being caught, um, not wanting to go to jail. Um, but again, illness. Um, a, a terrible injury of some sort that kept him from from doing stuff, um, that kind of stuff, suicide, death, uh, any of those things could have been what stopped him, you know. Or again, it's rare. A lot of serial killers don't stop, but you see somebody like BTK, BTK that stops for that long a time. Um, so maybe somehow he was just able to stop and then live a normal life after that. I, I tend to doubt that, but um, you know. It's just so many possibilities. That's what makes this this case mind-boggling. I find it intriguing. So, in your in your book, when you summed it up, I mean, did you come to any conclusions of your own that you dared state? Because I haven't read your book, but now I'm going to. <laughs> yeah. So the the book is is a pre-order. It'll it'll be out. Um, hopefully, I think May is when we're shooting for that. It'll actually be on the on the shelf. But um, what we do is we lay out the case. Um, in a neutral format, so it's it's not not so much our opinions on stuff. Um, we're laying out the case as the facts happened, as the uh, you know the incidents occurred, and just sort of doing an overlay of the case so people can get a full understanding of what happened and how it happened, and and uh, you know it goes in chronological order so they can follow along, and and we try to leave the case at the end of it where the listener makes their own determination of what happened. Um, and that's, the book's going to, you know, reflect the podcast to where at the end of it, you'll have all the material and you'll be able to come to your own conclusions. Well, that's cool. And I often do that with my own books as well. But I have to be honest with you, when it comes to these murder scenarios, like with the uh, Jack the Ripper, I've watched show after show on that and they keep coming up with a different person and they make it all sound so convincing for each person that, when the show ends, I think, oh, yeah, that's got to be the person. Then I watch another show, and I think, oh, yeah, that's got to be the person. And so, that's, that's what's, with the unsolved cases like this, you know, the, the, the person that's interested in solving the armchair detectives can sort of all hunt along and, and come up with their own suspects, and until they're proven wrong, you know, any of their theories could be right, and that's the, the lore of the case that you can, you know, try and solve it. Um, but unless the case is solved, we're not going to really know, oh, you know no. who's right. No, I, no but you want to. <laughs> I've already solved it because I've watched every season of Criminal Minds. It was probably your father, right? <laughs> well, it is Alabama. You have inside information, right? <laughs> I have high-level sources, as Alex would say. <laughs> so, Mike, what's next for you? Are you going to do more books like these? Well, our, so our current uh, season of Criminology is out and season two, and we're covering the Golden State Killer, which is an infamous uh, serial killer and rapist in, in California. Um, he was active for 10 years, and he's got 
you know, 50 rapes and a dozen murders to his credit, uh, you know, way more than Zodiac. And the, and the funny thing is a lot of people in California hadn't even heard of this guy, um, but they've heard of Zodiac. You know, I'll be honest, I haven't heard of him either. And I used to live in California, I lived in San Diego. So, yeah, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's intriguing. And do you have any specific serial killer you would like to write about? I mean, one that you've always had this burning desire besides the Zodiac killer? Well, the Zodiac was was the first season that I wrote. You know, we wrote that, and that was that was uh, a way to get that out of our systems. There's a good chance we're going to write uh, about this Golden State killer that we're doing now, and, and possibly put a book out after this season wraps up. But there's there's a lot of different cases. The Colonial Parkway murders is, is one that I've always been interested in. Um, one in Hollywood too, wasn't there? The Hollywood uh, serial killer, the uh, uh, Black Dahlia. Yeah, uh, no, not well. Yeah, that's an interesting one. That dates back too, but uh, that's an incredible one. Uh, I watched a couple different movies on that. And it always intrigues me. Pretty horrific. No, I was thinking of the one where the uh, two guys apparently they finally got them, didn't they? You would know better than I would. Oh, the um, yeah, I think you're talking about the Hillside Strangers. Are, um, that's yeah. that's one. Yeah, that's Hillside Strangers. yeah. Yeah, I, I mean that's there's unfortunately it seems like California has more than a share of. Uh, you know, serial killers to talk about. You know, you've got the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. You've got the Vampire Killer, uh, uh, Richard Chase. Um, it's just no shortage there. But I, I sort of like to move around the country and look at different areas, different crimes. Um, so, you know, in the future, I'm hoping that, you know, there'll be some other cases that intrigue me enough to, to draw me in and, and possibly write about. Well, as a side note, I just heard recently that Cincinnati is the serial capital of the country, that more serial killers per capita have occurred in Cincinnati than in any other city in the country, which I thought was strange. That's what I... Cincinnati, Ohio. Yes, yes, isn't that strange? Yeah. Of all places. Of of all places, city, as as far as the city goes, not the state, the city. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting. I would have thought for sure it would have been someplace in California. Like Los Angeles, Hollywood, I mean... Yeah, 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 or in San Francisco, yeah. With Weinstein yeah. and all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's another case, that's another episode there. All by itself. <laughs> I think Kevin's murdering the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you had to concentrate on one particular state, which state would you pick, California? Um, I, You know, if, if I live in New Jersey, so California... You know, I, all the cases I seem to be drawn to are in California, but I, of course I live on the other side of the country, which is, is probably a good thing because my wife probably would have divorced me by now because I'd be out investigating uh, and researching like 24 hours a day. But um, I, I do like the idea of being able to look at some stuff closer to home. I look at some different cases in Pennsylvania um, that, I, that I like. Um, Check out Cincinnati. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I sort of move around, and, and luckily with the Internet and with books and stuff, I'm able to learn about different cases that I'm interested in all over the country. So I sort of I sort of gravitate to different cases here and there all over the place. Well, pardon my ignorance here, but you keep saying we when, you, when you're talking about these books, so I take it these are collaborative efforts? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, my co-host on the, um, on the podcast uh, and co-author of the book is Mike Ferguson. Um, so we, we did the podcast together, and the book is, is the result of the podcast. And your wife doesn't take part in it at all? 
No, just just for moral support. <laughs> and, uh, um, Don't so, underestimate uh, that. No, it, it's definitely a value. I've got the greatest wife uh, you know I can ask for, and she's very supportive of of the true crime stuff that I work on. So you know, I'm, I'm very lucky from that standpoint. It sounds like you are. Of course, we are on air, so you kind of would have to say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> I, it is, I honestly do think it, though. So. Okay. So, any television in your future, Mike? Well, I actually, I just occur. I did uh, an appearance on um, the ID Network. Just had a Golden State Killer special called uh, Golden State Killer. It's not over. It was a, a multi-night uh, um, episode that appeared uh, just last week. I think it was on the fifth. Is when it aired, fifth and sixth. Uh, so I appeared in that, and I actually um, did some consulting for um, the Zodiac show that was on the History Channel. Um, Impressive. So I, I have worked a little bit with TV. I, I definitely would like to to work some more with it, you know, whether it's behind the scenes or in front of the camera or whatever. Um, so I'm always open to different projects like that if they come along and, and the opportunities right. I, I definitely wouldn't rule it out. Um, so that's always a possibility. And, and how would people get a hold of you? I mean, how could they contact you? Do you are your books available for, or the book available for pre-order yet or any of that sort of yeah. thing? Yeah, so if, if they wanted to look at the book or learn, learn more about it, they can always go to Wild Blue Press, and, and they can go to wildbluepress.com backslash Zodiac pre-orders. And once they go there, there'll be a little page set up, and they can learn a little bit about the case, what the book is about, uh, they can do a pre-order if they want, and I'm I'm very active on social media. You know, they can always, you know, find me on on my podcast, um, social media at Twitter, which is Criminology Pod, uh, or I have my own uh, Twitter handle for all true crime stuff, which is True Crime Guy um, on at True Crime Guy on Twitter. How about a website where people could go and and, and check out? Yeah, I have uh, TrueCrimeGuy.com. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. I'll remember yeah, one. Right yeah. Guy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised it was available, but I liked the, I liked the sound of it, and it was available, so I got it. Yeah, I wish I'd gotten something like that. Instead, I got a really long one. No one's going to ever remember it. <laughs> so your, your latest book, Golden State Killer, tell us about that. So that so, we're just in the middle of the season, um, you know, of the of the podcast uh, on the Golden State Killer. So we're hoping that, and, and it's most likely that we will do the same thing—a book about the um, Golden State Killer based on the podcast. Um, and and the the podcast the book is going to be a series, essentially, where each case we cover. Uh, as it's converted to a book, it'll be part of an ongoing series. Um, so we think that's pretty neat. Like the, the, the Zodiac book is called Criminology True Crime Podcast Presents the Case of the Zodiac Killer. So for the, the Golden State Killer books, should we do that, um, it would be Criminology True Crime Podcast Presents the Case of the Golden State Killer. Um, so that would probably come out. Um, down the road a ways. We're, we're looking at wrapping up the season uh, on the case probably in June. Um, so some point after that, we would 
probably expect to have a Golden State book uh, coming out after that. Oh, one quick question. Would it be better to have the book out before the podcast so people could read it and listen to the podcast at the same time, like a synergistic thing? Or do you think it's better to have the book come out after the podcast? Um, I actually like the book after the podcast, excuse me, because I think there's some things that we can put in the book that we can't put on a pad, uh, on a podcast, you know, um, as far as photos and, and uh, yeah. Well, that's what I was wondering why the two together might not be cool, because as they're listening, they could be, you know, reading along in the book at the same time. But, yeah, I see your point. And after the fact, it's sort of a compilation and then everything is available all at once. Yeah. And it's and it's sort of, you know, it sort of allows you to get the audio version of it and then go back afterwards. Because, again, we we deal with these over, you know, sometimes 12 episodes. So 12, you know, weekly episodes. Of, of listening to it and soaking it in, and then you can go back after that and get the book and um, brush up on some of the stuff you might have missed in the podcast. Plus, we have additional information in there, things that we didn't necessarily include in the podcast that we will get in the book as well. Yeah, because you can't absorb it all at once. You know, it, it takes Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, Mike, I appreciate you being on with us today here on the House of Mystery. It's. Um, I I appreciate you guys having me on. It was uh, a great conversation. I love the show. I oh, thought it was great. Absolutely. Now, one more time, uh, bef before we let you go, what is your contact information in case anybody believes that maybe they have something that's relevant to your research or relevant to your appearances or your writings? Uh, the, the easiest way is go to truecrimeguy.com, mm -hmm. and then on the right side of the page, there's a contact form. And you can just put your information in there, put your name in there, and uh, uh, I'll get the, the contact. And I usually am pretty good about getting back to people, so I can usually get back to people you know, within a day or so. Yeah, it might be a great source of uh, information for you, actually, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I've gotten leads and tips and things before that I've passed along, so if somebody has some information, you know, I'd be glad to look at it and send it to the appropriate uh, agency. And do you uh, assure anonymity? Now, we've got about one minute left with you, and I've got to ask this. It just dawned on me. What would you do if you got a letter in cipher from Zodiac himself? I've actually, you know, hoped, you know, that I would get one in the mail. I thought that would be pretty neat. Um, yeah, I would just think that would be uh, something that would be a neat story. I mean, I'm not worried about him because, I, like you said, I, I think he's dead. But if I got a letter in the mail from him, I, I, it would just be sort of a weird souvenir. But uh, additionally, hopefully it would provide some clues. You know, I obviously turn it over to law enforcement, and then, you know, maybe there's something in there that they are able to track him down with. But, you know, that never happens. So, you know, at this point, who knows? I mean, we keep saying that he's too old now. You know, he'd be dead. He'd be dead. But, I mean, word has it that Hitler's alive in Antarctica. Yeah, but he's probably in a nursing home by now. <laughs> Never know. If he's out there listening to this, send me a letter. Awesome. Well, everybody, we've been joined today by one of our premier Zodiac specialists. And again, Michael, we thank you. Thank you for being on with us today. Incredible show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Awesome. Well, everybody, you've been listening to the House of Mystery.
and we hope you'll join us. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.